as a boy, we were attending, at then it wasn't even called Vineyard Christian Fellowship, but we were attending John Wember's services at Canyon High School in Yorba Linda. And just like I, how I feel when I come onto the campus and I feel the peace of God, well, you drove into that high school parking lot and you could feel that same peace just magnetized, amplified times a hundred. Like you could feel that thick presence of God in the parking lot. And like, I'm like, little ADHD boy that that doesn't really want to go to church and yet undeniable so intense so thick so real that it it marked me as a young boy and then we would go we would go into the gymnasium and we would uh you know, we would hear the, the vineyard music. We would hear John Wimber's music, which we played today during worship. Did you guys enjoy worship today? Did you feel the peace of God today? And again, I, I had to sit through the service. Two hours, three hours sometimes. And I didn't go to Sunday school. I sat with the adults. And like I was hyper. I mean, you know me. I, was, I mean, you could probably deduce it was kind of like a naughty little boy at times. Kind of. <laughs> Overactive imagination, like, you know, needed, needed, you know, to be stimulated, needed to, to run. But regardless, I would sit there the whole time and just soak it all in and be completely enraptured in the music. And then I would even be tuned in to what, the, what John was saying. Man, that man was gifted. He could communicate. So that's why I pray that prayer. Because I would like it a hundred times more intense than it is right now. And I think that you would too. It's really, really good, folks. The peace of God in this place is really good. But it can be a hundred times better. I've felt it. Kind of like a drug. You want more of that. So we're doing the biography of John Wimber today. And, well, okay, first of all, let me, let me ask a few questions. Um, how many people have heard of Calvary Chapel? Sweet. How many people have heard of Chuck Smith? Awesome. How many people, this one's going to be a little bit tougher, so I'll know that you're a true Calvary Chapel person, if you can get this one right, or if you raise your hand. How many people know who Lonnie Frisbee is? Got a couple of Lonnie Frisbee fans. Okay, so that part in history, in the mid, late 60s, going into the 70s, is what our nation, and specifically Southern California, is what we got to experience, a, a transformation from darkness into light. Uh, the 60s, no matter what uh, MTV and the History Channel say, the 60s were a dark and evil place. It was not fun. And then out of the darkness was birthed what we call the Jesus People movements. Spearheaded by Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel, Maranatha music, Melody Land music, and this wild-eyed hippie named Lonnie Frisbee. Incidentally, uh, Greg Laurie is producing a movie through Lionsgate about the whole Calvary Chapel movement in, during the Jesus People movement. And, okay, you ready for this? Chuck Smith is going to be played by Frazier, by, <laughs> by Kelsey Grammer. I kid you not. I think it's a perfect fit. I don't think it could get any better. So, yeah, Kelsey Grammer is going to be Chuck Smith. And the new Jesus from The Chosen, you guys seen The Chosen? I finally have been a better pastor, and I've seen a couple episodes. <laughs> I know, bad pastor. I still prefer Jim Caviezel over this new guy, but what can you say? Oh, I know. But the guy that plays Jesus in The Chosen is going to play Lonnie Frisbee in this new movie. So it's going to be awesome. I, I can't wait to see it. It's part of our history. It's part of our heritage. Now, how many people know who John Wimber is? Got a few John Wimber people. 
How many people know who Gunnar Payne is? You know who Gunnar Payne is? Wow. Okay, wonderful. So we're going to learn about John Wimber today, and we're going to learn probably more importantly about Gunnar Payne today. Like, who in the world's Gunnar Payne? Well, it could quite possibly just be you. In the biography of the saints, the whole purpose and the whole direction of this series on talking about saints, modern day saints, the ones that, that aren't in the Bible, the ones that are outside the Bible, uh, we're looking into not just putting people on pedestals like I just don't want to do this, like I don't want to idolize John Wimber. That's not my goal. But what I do want to say is he had a calling and we're going to look at his calling today there might be a part two, we'll see, but we're going to look at the calling of John Wimber and why is it important and why it could possibly be important to you. Last week, we went over the five categories of callings, and I believe that John will fall directly into the slot of an apostle. He acts like apostle, thinks like apostle, does what apostles do. And so we're going to define that a little bit. But the point is, the thing again, I don't want us to idolize any man or any woman. We're going to be doing some biographies that include women in this series as well, but I don't want to idolize this. What I want to do is I want to illustrate how their story can inspire us, their, their journey, how, how you, you know what, you just might be a John Wimber or you just might be a Hunter Payne. You never know. John Wimber drafted off of what Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel and Maranatha music did. That whole Jesus people, hippie transformation movement that saved the world, John had this ability to create something new. Uh, in our prayer meeting this morning, we were praying and, and Joyce Racine was talking about the concept of, of going from strength to strength, from glory to glory. And this is what John does with that movement is he, he goes from glory to glory. The salvation of the Jesus people movement was huge. But all of their music, all of their worship was geared and focused towards evangelism. Which is a great thing. It's what God was doing in the moment. But God always does a new thing. And so he comes in and does a new thing where John takes the whole concept of music and he transforms it, not just for evangelism, but ministering to the Lord. It is a relationship in worship. Intimate connection through worship is what John introduces. And it literally transforms everything that we know about church to this day. Before the internet, John's worship songs would end up in Siberia within a week. No email, no internet. People just hearing the song in Yorba Linda in Anaheim and then taking it out. It was amazing. John led this movement where churches were multiplying all over the place at a rapid pace. And he was a great communicator. He was a great leader. He was on the cover of every Christian magazine you could possibly think on. And he was on Christian talk shows. He was on secular talk shows. He was representing and doing something new in the area of charismatic, the charismatic movement to where it even got labeled the third wave, the third wave of the Holy Spirit. And and we're intimately connected to that. That is, that's who we are. That's what we were birthed out of as a church. But I don't want to just focus on the glory days. You know what I'm really fascinated about? I am fascinated about John's discipleship process. He was a successful ministry leader. But how did he get there? How was he discipled and who discipled him to advance the kingdom of God? It started when he was a very young boy. 
Have any grandmas in the room? Great aunts? Do you have a praying grandma? I know we're not supposed to say amen, but say yes, I've got a praying grandma. Yeah. You have a praying aunt. Do you know how important they are? Do you know how important the seed, the spiritual seed that is sown from grandparents who pray, who are on their knees? Do you know how important that what takes place upstairs in kids' ministries is an eternal effect? Like we might not see it because these little rugrats are running around all over the place driving us bazonkers. So we can't necessarily see it. But I'll tell you this, they're hearing I know, because I was like that overactive imagination boy. I was bouncing off the walls. I couldn't, they couldn't contain me. But I absorbed it. I absorbed this spiritual truth by osmosis. It's stuck on me. And it's sticking on our kids in kids' ministries right now. You have no idea the impact that could be taking place in kids' ministries right now. There could be a future John Wimber. There could be a future Chuck Smith. There could be a future Lonnie Frisbee over there. And we just don't know it yet. But that's where the seeds begin. They begin when you're a kid. It's one of the, the instances. John Wimber's family, they were a hardworking farming family from Scotland. Need I say more? And they were not believers. They were not Christians. They were not churchgoers. They were hardworking, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, farmers. They had no intention to ever go to church. And then one day, John's grandfather is dying on his deathbed. The previous week, again, maybe he kind of knew that he was going downhill. The previous week, a Baptist preacher convinced him to come to church. So he went to church probably for the first time in a very, very long time. And he heard the gospel message. A week later, he's on his deathbed. He's dying. And the family is in there. And John is there as a young boy. And in that moment, John's grandfather, whom was the most important person in John's life at that moment. He sits up out of bed and he says, I can see Jesus. He is my Savior. He's coming. He is coming. He's coming. And then he dies. Now, the family chalked that up to, well, you know, the, the old guy was just, you know, delusional and losing his mind at that moment. But the boy knew different. And Carol Wimber, who wrote the book, well, one of the biographies, there's a number of biographies on John Wimber. Uh, read this one. It's written by John Wimber's wife. It's called, It's the Way That It Was. If you go to the Christian bookstores and you find some other biographies, half of them are really bad because they're writing to them because they don't like John Wimber. The other half are kind of okay, but this is the one that you want to get because it's true, because it's family. And Carol's extremely honest. She, she says that it was at that moment that the first seed was planted in his soul. Like what we do with our kids, how we pray for our kids, the way that we do Sunday school. I, it's not trivial, folks, it has power. You never know. Look, they're listening. Newsflash moms and dads, they're listening to absolutely everything. And they're watching. They're watching us worship. They're listening to us pray. They're, they're observing our behavior in the everyday. They're watching. And it's time to sow seeds into our kids. That's the first thing. It's the first connection point in discipleship. Now, John didn't grow up in church. In fact, he describes himself as being a full-blown pagan. Like this was like one religious experience. But from that point into adulthood, no church radar whatsoever. Do you know anybody in your life that has no church radar? 
Do you know somebody that has never been to Sunday school? Do you know somebody that is that, that maybe maybe they come on Easter, maybe they come on Christmas? Do you know somebody that maybe even revels in the identity of, they might not say pagan, they might not say sinner, but they like being worldly? Like, like that's who they are. They, they, they enjoy it. Well, that was John. And in his worldly life, in his worldly career, he was a successful man. He wrote and managed the Righteous Brothers. He wrote for them. He wrote for the Beatles. He was a manager of venues. He was a promoter. He was all over the music scene. He was very successful and very good at what he did. But again, he describes himself. I mean, he was just living the life, full-blown pagan. Alcoholic and like literally smoking five packs of cigarettes a day. Do you know anybody like that? And yet, probably because of that seed that was sown, he knew that there was something more to be had. And it was a friend that invited him to a friend's church. Friends, a friend's church, it sounds nice, but it's Quakers. Uh, Quakers, the Quaker denomination goes way back to the founding of our nation. So it's like the Quaker oatmeal guy, that guy. So, or that gal, kind of looks like Barbara Bush, right? Um, <laughs> that was bad. Um, but the Quakers were a, a religious sect in our nation, and in the expression of their worship, well, they would quake. They would, they would quake a little bit. And there was another group of people that thought that they were doing it wrong, and they would finger point and name called, and those were the shakers, and so they shook. So... And they were divided about whether you should quake or whether you should shake. And then there were the, I'm not, I'm not making this up. It's true. <laughs> and then there were, you know, it's also where we get the idea of where we, the holy rollers. But all of that expression died out. And by the time John uh, was a young man who got invited to a Quaker church, they weren't doing any of that expression. Although the community was strong. It was a, it was a group of Christians that loved one another and they spent the time together. And they were in the Word of God, dedicated to the Word of God, and reading and understanding the Bible. And probably even more importantly, dedicated to sharing their faith. They just kind of quit shaking and quaking. It died out years ago. And so John darkened the door of a church one day, and he was upset because there was no ashtrays. And so he would put his cigarettes out on the doorway on the way in. And during these services, he'd go take smoke breaks. But he was sitting there and listening, and I'm going to, like, did you know that discipleship isn't just me preaching on Sunday? I know I'm amazing. I know you are so enlightened and transformed each and every Sunday. And at lunchtime, you talk about my message all during lunch. And you wake up Monday morning and you are a new creation. Just kidding. True discipleship takes place in the everyday. This is just, this is just your sanctuary. This is just your Sabbath. This is your break. But if you want to grow in the Lord, you've got to be able to do life together. You need to be in a growth group. You need to be bouncing ideas off of each other. You need to be asking each other questions. Probably more importantly, I believe this is my personal preference. Like when we share our faith, it needs to be done around a round table, at a dinner table, at lunch, at coffee. And it's going to take time. Probably now more than ever. If you know somebody that doesn't know the Lord, you need to invest the time in them. Listen to this. It took John some time to adjust to church. But he liked Bible study right away. All right? Does that make sense? Didn't like the church. Couldn't understand it. Where he would at Bible study, where he would ask all the questions that he wanted and receive straight answers without all the religious jargon. 
the time after church was over, they went over to lunch at Dick and Lynn's house. And it made the trip worth it for John because Dick would interpret for John what the preacher had said. Hopefully that you guys don't have to do that. You might. I know sometimes I get a little weird. You might, you might have to interpret what I say to somebody someday. Can you do that? Quote. This is John speaking. What the hell was all that about the lamb's blood? Okay, think about it. Do you know somebody in your life? Like I'm saying, we're going to drink the lamb's blood of life today. We're going to have holy communion and we're going to eat the body of Christ. Do you know somebody in your life where that would be like, what in the world are they talking? Like, what the hell are they talking about? Sorry for the, the H word. I'm, I'm reading it out of the book. John Wimber said it. So anyway, sorry. When do they do that? Yuck. And Dick would explain to him about the sacrificial death of Jesus. What's with all the Holy Ghost jazz? Sounds kind of weird. And Dick would do his best to make John understand the third person of the Trinity. And so it went week after week. Okay, did you catch that? Week after week. John's questions getting answered to his satisfaction by Dick and Lynn, making a wonderful lunch for them out of the little well-behaved family of six. I have a scene in my memory of looking for my, my two-year-old and finding him on the top of their house. God bless her forever. <laughs> People don't really understand our language these days. And it's, well, frankly, it's your job to d describe it to them. And you're not to be able to illustrate what the cross is and what it does for the non-believer. So the sermons were interpreted to him through his friend. And then enter Gunter Payne, probably the most influential disciple of John Wimber that most people, with the exception of Kim Noyes, have never heard of. <laughs> I have a, a, an affection towards this Gunter Payne character because he was an oil rig worker in Yorba Linda before Yorba Linda became Yorba Linda. It was farmland and, and oil land. And so he was a, he was a rig welder. Uh, my grandfather and my dad for a little bit, they were rig welders. It's hard work. These are roughnecks, like steel workers. Anybody know a steel worker? I did a steel worker funeral a couple years ago. Oh, my goodness. That was a rough crowd. So they're rough people, hard workers, tough. And this is the man that discipled John the most. John and Carol would just even pop into his machine shop and he would just drop everything and begin to tell them about Jesus. Uh, he would read them through the scriptures and, 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 and the whole time John's chain smoking as he's learning more and more about Jesus. Like, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could disciple somebody as they're chain smoking. But he was just eating it all in. And Gunnar didn't really care that he was smoking up the shop and never did, never said anything about it. Never judged him for where he was in his moment of discipleship. And this process was over, was probably years in the making. I know it was at least one, a year, but years in the making. And John and Carol would say that Gunnar, this welder, was the most Christian individual that they had ever met. And other people were saying that about Gunnar. Not only did, did Gunnar, would he take the time, would he stop his job and sit down and disciple you, not only would he do that, but he'd also go into the community and knock on doors and tell people about Jesus. I know we don't do that these days and I know there's other 
religions that kind of have the corner on that market, and it's a little awkward. There's probably more creative ways that we can reach our neighbors. But maybe you do need to knock on somebody's door. I don't know. But that's what he did. He was committed to it. And so there was a fascination with Gunner. Again, a very simple, hardworking man dedicated to the Word of God, dedicated to sharing it. And they're like, why? Years before John and Carol met Gunner, Gunner's teenage daughter was murdered. Murdered by a farmhand. You can put two and two together. I'm going to keep it PG. And back in the 60s, on farms where police presence is not that present, how do you think justice is administrated? Yeah. So the farmers and the laborers, they're like, we're going to kill this kid. And there was a manhunt throughout the whole area trying to catch him. And um, guess who got to him first? It was Gunner. Gunner caught his daughter's murderer. And handed him over to the police. And then said, it's a really good thing I got to him first. Because if my friends would have gotten to him, they would have killed him. After the judicial process, after everything going through court, uh, Gunner is convicted of murder. Not Gunner, uh, the the individual, the the farmhand is convicted of murder. This is the 60s. They juiced that guy. They, they, they lit him up. They put him in the electric chair. They fried him. But before they pulled the lever down, Gunner had spent enough time with his child's murderer that he led that man to the Lord. That's what Christians do. That's what Christians do. Americans don't do that. In fact, we have signs and flags and American slogans and statements that say, kill them all and let God sort them out. But not Gunner. Gunner wanted to save his soul, and he did. That made an impact on John Wimber. John, too, would go door to door and learn evangelism, and learn how to love people from Gunner Payne. These are the people that you don't hear about. Again, you know, in the limelight, you hear about the superstars. But let's just be honest. Most of us will never be superstars, but we can be a Gunner Payne. We can be a praying grandma. We can invest in people and to see what God can do. After that experience, after seeing, well, one day in Bible study, years of Bible study, um, Gunner Gunner lost another child, by the way, and still went to Bible study, Still still never harbored any bitterness in his heart towards God, never cursed God and died, stayed faithful in the midst of some of the most horrible stuff. That's what Christians do. John and Carol will say, like, how does he do this? Where, do, where does his peace come from? Like, what kind of man is this that can, that can take this type of punishment and still love Jesus? Who is this guy? And then years of Bible study, folks, years of Bible study. I don't know if you've figured out by now, but, but John and Carol were not your average people. They were hard. They were stubborn. They are extremely gifted, extremely quirky. They're incredibly, incredible people. But they weren't going to get saved by a preacher man on the street. Like street evangelism would not work for them. It took years. It took patience. It took being able to put up with cigarettes and foul language. It took years of that. So 
No sinner's prayer, no logical steps, no apologetics. Again, around the dinner table, Gunnar says to John Wember someday, hey, I think it's time. What do you think? Like, that's what he said. I think it's time. And both John and Carol knew exactly what he meant. I mean, it's time to accept Jesus into your heart. Like, you've been studying, you've been asking all your questions, you've been smoking all your cigarettes, you've been curious long enough. Uh, now it's time. It's time to make Jesus your Savior. A lot of us have already done that in this room. And it's also time to make Jesus Lord. There's a difference between the two, by the way. Some people have Jesus as their Savior, but not necessarily Jesus as their Lord. And in that moment, Carol hits her knees and begins saying her Catholic prayer that she knew. And, and John just started, again, the, a tough guy started just weeping before, he could, before his knees could even hit the ground. That's how you accept Jesus into your heart. Your heart is broken for him. You know that it's not about you. It's all about him. And when you accept what Jesus has done on the cross, what John would say, you realize that your, your pocket changed in Jesus' jeans. And he can spend you in any way that he would like once you receive the salvation and enter into eternity. John had a garage full of music, of recordings, of arrangements that would have quite possibly have made him a rich man. So he had other great works like Twist and Shout and other great works like he produced for the Righteous Brothers, all in his garage. And he knew at that moment that his calling had changed. He loaded up all of his valuables, his entire life's work in the back of his station wagon, drives it to the dump and kicks it out. And then he calls up his venues that he is promoting and all of the bands that he's been working with and all the different projects that he had his hands in all over the place. And he quit. He quit all of them because of the processing of what Jesus has done for his life. Now, let me just make a little side note. I don't necessarily suggest that you all quit your jobs. I, I don't. Because, okay, your calling is your calling. It's not my calling. It's not your neighbor's calling. And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. You cannot let any individual, any pastor, any holy man, any holy woman say, you know, you need to be more like me. I'm an, I'm an evangelist. That's my calling. And if you were a true believer, you would be an evangelist too. You can't allow anybody to dictate what your calling is. So I don't want to, I want to just like alleviate that the, the social strain and the guilt and the pressure because it shouldn't be coming from me. Your convictions about what your calling is should come from the Lord. No man, because every man's a liar. But our Lord cannot lie, and he will never lie to you. So he's got a calling for you. And again, I don't know what it is, but here's the distinction. I think this, I mean, no matter, okay, your calling might be that you're going to go to Tanzania with Pastor Larry and be broke for the rest of your life, but happy. That could be your calling. Or your calling can be right where you're at right now. But it's all about identity. So are you a businessman who's a Christian? Uh, are you a lady that's managing a company that's a Christian? Are you a teacher that's a Christian? Are you a student that's a Christian? Uh, are you a homemaker that's a Christian? Are you, are you any of these things? I'm going to redirect you. You need to be a Christian that's a business person. You need to be a student, excuse me, you need to be a Christian that's a student. You need to be a homemaker. No, you need to be a Christian that's a homemaker. You need to be a Christian that is a professional. You need to be a Christian that is an artist. You need to be a welder, a roughneck. No, you need to be a Christian that is a welder. That is a roughneck. Amen. 
Do you see the distinction? That's why Hunter Payne was able to do what he was meant to do, because he was a Christian that welded metal. So be confident where you're at. Now, if God is calling you to pack up all your stuff and take it to the dump, take it to the dump. John quit all of his jobs. Shortly after, the Righteous Brothers called him up and said, hey, uh, we've, got, we've got this Christmas album. We want you to do this Christmas album. We're going to make a ton of money because, let's face it, everybody would buy a Christmas album from the Righteous Brothers. And he turned it down. That would have made him a rich man. Disneyland came a calling. They wanted him to manage all the music venues for the entire park. Every soundtrack, every band, every stage, they wanted him to manage that. That would have set him up for life. And it's working at Disneyland. And he would have, made, he would have been very well off by that. And he turned it down. Everybody's like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? It's like, I got to be faithful to what God is calling me to do. And, and we prayed about it. Carol and I prayed about it. He's not calling us to do that. We don't know the process that we're going through, but he's called us to do something specific. And he ended up working in a machine shop. He didn't even know what he was building. But through that desert season, through that process, and staying tightly connected to his church, the Friends Church, the Quaker Church, he grew in discipleship. He grew in maturity. Uh, He quit smoking, and he started teaching. The the student became the master, and eventually he became on staff, and eventually he led that church. And his outreach, his ability to connect with everyday people and to bring them into the fold. I mean, that's one of the, one of the things about apostles that they can play around in all these different areas and all these different gifts. He was a great evangelist. He was so good that he caught the attention of Fuller Seminary. And Fuller Seminary said, please, pretty please, will you come and show us how you are doing this? And so he left his church and he started working for Fuller Seminary and the church growth movement, going around the entire nation, teaching workshops for churches like this and how to be a better church. In fact, they went all over the world. He put together a team and they would go in and how to assess and how to grow and how to reach communities, how to be more relatable. He did all of these things. He did them all in the context of his calling and his abilities. And then one day, he's reading through the Bible. And he's like, I want to do this stuff. You see, although the the community that he was discipled in They were what we call cessationists. Now, they love Jesus. They share the word of God. They, they want to see people get saved. They serve the poor. They love each other. They're great people. And I'm not denigrating them at all whatsoever, but they have a belief that I don't believe. And cessationists believe that all of the sign gifts, physical healing, signs and wonders, miracles, speaking in other languages, prophecy, words of knowledge, hearing God's voice, being able to communicate God's voice to other people. Uh, cessationists believe that all of those things ended once the stuffy old guys bound this together in one, one book. So once they bound it, like, okay, we don't, have, we don't need miracles anymore. And so they, they believe that they ceased I'm not quite sure when, but maybe around 300 A.D. They just thought everything ceased at that moment because they, because the church didn't need miracles. I don't know about you, but I need me a miracle every once in a while. So I don't believe in cessationism. Uh, two reasons. One is because I have experienced every single one of the sign gifts. So my experience is kind of has a problem with a belief. Does that make sense? My experience is contrary to a doctrine. And secondly, 
continuation theology is just a lot more fun. <laughs> so, and so he's just like thinking to himself, really, the Bible was the one that was leading him. He's like, when do I get to do the stuff? It's all they're doing it in the Bible. And well, there's no reason why we can't do it. So when do I get this to do the stuff is what John would say. And he then through all of his travels and through all of his church connections, he would encounter different streams, different denominations that believed in the stuff that were practicing healing and praying for the sick and the like. And that started something that was like the next, I don't even want to say it's the next level, but that was the next part of his journey is he was opening himself up to what the Spirit could do and where it could lead. And he began to pray for people. It didn't always work. It was, there was a lot of praying for people and he would end up getting sick. But he had this, this statement that everybody gets to play. That it isn't just, you know, the stuff isn't just relegated to the super spiritual. That everybody is invited into this process and everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to have faith, enough faith in God to see what he can do, to see a breakthrough, to see a miracle. And, and so John just went for it. And that is where the true transformation of everything that we know and how we, our philosophy, how it all took place was all from that moment of saying, yeah, God loves me and, and he loves me enough that he's going to entrust me with these gifts. That's you, everybody. That is you. He had the calling of an apostle. Apostles, again, that's a very, very churchy word. But an apostle, and a calling of an apostle is an individual that thinks like an entrepreneur. So just think of an actual entrepreneur, like an Elon Musk or a, a pioneer of industry or somebody like that who's going to push forward and make things that never existed before. And so from our context and what John does is he's planting churches that he's reproducing and that he's training and he's, he is showing the body of Christ maybe how to do it properly. One of the things that he noticed, him and Peter Wagner both noticed as they are going from place to place, is that like our church, they would pull into a place and they would feel the presence of God. And then they would go to other churches who seemingly had their act together. They had all the right programs. They had all the right people. They had all the right knowledge. And yet they didn't have that, like they should be successful. They should be bursting at the seams. There should be transformational life taking place. Why not? And they came to a very interesting conclusion. And the, the conclusion as to why the presence of God was in some churches and not other churches was this. They didn't know. And these are professors, right? These are the, these are the eggheads. These are the big brains. These are, the per, these are your consultants. The consultants know everything, right? Everybody needs to have a consultant. Well, these consultants are like, I don't, we don't know what's going on. I guess God just does whatever he wants to do. And it was from that realization that God is just going to do whatever he wants to do. And they were able just to release and the vineyard movement just spread like wildfire. And some good cases and some bad cases. But hey, we're here, we're here right? But this is what apostles create. Apostles create fire. They align themselves to the leading and the, the sovereignty of God, what God wants to do. And they say, this is what God wants to do. And they move forward, they plow ahead, they make something that never existed before. That's one thing that, a, that an apostle will do. Entrepreneurial mindset that's going to create something that didn't exist. That might be you. It might not be you. I'm like, I don't want to do that. But that might be you. But think about this. Maybe it's somebody you know that's smoking five packs of cigarettes. That's brilliant. They just need Jesus. You just need to show them that there's a better way. Amen. So maybe you have a John Wimber in your life. Maybe it's one of those kids out there. You never know. That's what apostles do. They create things that don't exist. Second thing that they do 
They love the church. They come in to certain situations, and an apostle can love any type of an expression. One of the reasons why John was exposed to Baptists, Quakers, Presbyterians, Lutherans, is that he was able to communicate and talk to them, and he loved every expression of faith that was out there, even those cessationists, because that was where his base came from. He was able to go into any environment and encourage the church. I think that this is what... I mean, this is what I need. This is what Granite Creek needs. This is what they all need right now. Every single church in our communities, they all need encouragement these days. We need to quit name calling. Oh my gosh, I forgot to read the Bible today, didn't I? Holy smokes, that's not good. Wow. That's a first, right? Oh my goodness. I was supposed to open with this. I just got too excited. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. If you're somewhat new, you ought to know I do spend a lot of time in the Bible, just not today. So we're not one of those churches, I promise you. Okay, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. You guys okay? Hang on to, hang on to your seats for a second. Are you ready for this? This will change your life. This will change your life. At least you're going to have a better day if you do this one thing. Do everything without complaining or arguing. And you're like thinking to yourself, wait, how is that possible? I'm married. <laughs> do everything without complaining or arguing. What? It says everything. How is that possible? I don't know, but it's Scripture. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Are you crazy? So that you may become blameless and pure. Ready for this? This is your identity. Children of God. Children of God without fault. And this is true. You know this. In a crooked and depraved generation. So clearly we are in a crooked and depraved generation. Like we thought it was bad 10 years ago. And look at it now. It's crooked and depraved generation. And, and well, how do you become blameless? How do you become pure? How do you step into your identity as a child of God in this crooked and depraved generation. Well, again, we started it off by not arguing or complaining about anything. In which you will shine like stars in which will shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. All right? So what apostles do, they come in and they'll even come into dark places and they'll begin to declare, they'll begin to speak life. You know, instead of arguing, instead of complaining, instead of trash talking, instead of name calling and finger pointing and all these horrible things that Christians are really great at doing, they'll come in and, and an apostle will speak life even into the most dysfunctional of groups. Speaking life. Shining like stars. Look, I just want Granite Creek to be a shining star. I want you to be a shining star. We all need to be as bright as we possibly can. As you hold out the word of life, our words have life. There is power in the tongue to heal. And there's power in the tongue to kill, right? In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing or in vain. Other passages say you just keep on running, you run this race, and you don't give up and you don't quit. Maybe you're not an apostle, but you can act apostolically. You can go into communities and environments. You can begin to be a shining light and to speak life. And you can do... You can do what John Wimber did for this church, and you can say, don't give up. Yeah. Don't quit. Yeah. Okay, when I started this message off, I said, if it wasn't for John Wimber, we wouldn't be sitting here today. Do you realize how 
true that one word was from him? Like, you saw the video. My dad's like, look, it was a bad time. It was a dark season. I wanted to quit. In fact, I called it in. I'm like, John Wimber, this is too hard. I'm done. I'm out. I quit. And the apostle John Wimber says, don't you quit. Don't you dare quit. You can make it. You can do it. Could you imagine if that phone call hadn't taken place? We wouldn't be sitting here. Like this building would be bank owned, serving the devil, not serving the kingdom of God. One phone call, one phone call saved hundreds of people, hundreds of marriages, salvations and baptisms and feeding the poor and advancing the kingdom of God. It's really quite incomprehensible to understand the impact that Granite Creek has made. One phone call from an apostle. Who can you call today? Who can you call and say, don't you dare give up. I know you're doubting. I know it's hard. I know it sucks. Don't you dare cuss God. Don't you you curse God and die. Don't you dare do that. Take a break. Take a breather. Take a rest. Guard your heart above everything else. From the heart is the wellspring of life. Don't you dare harden your heart. You've got more. God's got a calling on your life. Like you, you need to have that conversation with somebody. Somebody, you, you know somebody that's going to give up. You can break it. You can make sure it doesn't happen. And what exponential effect will take place because of that one conversation. So, Look, again, you might not be the, the entrepreneur, creative person, but you can be apostolic and you can encourage somebody. You can come into a very dark situation and you can speak life. Amen.